Good evening, everyone. My name is Ethan LeCavalier-Kidney, and I'm delighted to be your host tonight for this virtual town hall meeting. Tonight, I'm joined by Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Services, Mike Ellis, Minister of Justice, Tyler Shandro, and Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, Nicholas Milliken. Before we hear from our speakers, let me start by explaining how a telephone town hall works. Right now, Albertans are answering their phones and connecting to this discussion. We will hear from the ministers shortly. After that, it will be your turn. You will have a chance to ask your questions and raise issues that you think are important to public safety and emergency services in Alberta. You can get in line to ask a question at any time by pressing star three on your phone keypad. You'll then be put through to an operator who will take down your question and put you in line. Here are a few things to keep in mind when you raise your hand to ask a question. When you press star three to ask your question, you'll be routed to an operator who will ask you to provide your name and community and who you're directing your question toward. Please try to keep your question as brief as possible. There are a lot of people on the line and we want to try and get to as many of your questions as we can. If you don't feel comfortable asking your question live, you can tell the operator that you'd like to have your question read out. Again, my name is Ethan LeCavalier-Kidney, and I'm excited to be your moderator for this virtual town hall meeting with Ministers Ellis, Shandro, and Milliken. I'm here to keep this conversation moving smoothly and to make sure we get to hear your opinions and have as much discussion as possible. Before we start getting to your questions, I'd like to invite our speakers to say a few words. Minister Ellis. Well, thanks very much, Ethan. Uh, and uh, I am Mike Ellis, uh, Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Services. And as Ethan mentioned, I am here with my colleagues, uh, uh, Tyler Shandro, Minister of Justice, and uh, my good friend, Nicholas Milliken, uh, as well, uh, Minister of Mental Health and Addiction. So uh, I wanted to begin by uh, just thanking everyone uh, for joining us uh, at this event this evening. I'm sure you have a lot of questions to ask us, and I, I promise we're going to do our best to get through as many of them as possible. And uh, you know, I'll answer them as candidly, of course, as that I can. Uh, before we get into tonight's Q&A portion, let me just briefly address some of the topics uh, that I'm sure uh, are top of mind for uh, most, if not all of you. Uh, I know, for instance, uh, that uh, the fight against uh, real crime remains uh, an issue of concern. Uh, I'm happy to say that uh, we're addressing these concerns and have taken several steps to create a more visible presence, uh, police presence, in more remote areas of the province. Uh, no longer will police services uh, be seen and used as an arm of the state. Rather, they must be an extension and actually reflection of the communities that they serve. And it means uh, police, uh, uh, police in this province are not forces anymore. They are services, services that respond to the, the needs of people when called upon. Uh, since coming into office, our government has made historic investments in policing, reinvesting, uh, uh, reinvesting the money we've collected from municipalities uh, back into frontline law enforcement, uh, counting the uh, commitments uh, that we've made in Budget 2023, including a $27.3 million investment in the Alberta Sheriffs that will enhance public safety throughout the province. We know that there's a growing concern and a need for our boots on the ground. That is why we've also added more than 500 RCMP positions throughout rural Alberta. Uh, every municipality has its own public safety priorities and its, its own set of local concerns. 
uh, concerns that uh, you know aren't always met by the RCMP contract policing, and that's why in Budget 2023 we've in de- uh, invested an additional 8.4 million for police support grants that will allow municipalities to conduct feasibility studies in establishing their own police service or whatever is going to work best for them. These studies are going to be independent review of the policing in their communities to consider what kind of policing service that would best serve their community. Our focus is uh, working with municipalities to empower them to find policing solutions for their communities and their unique needs. Uh, No one knows uh, communities uh, better than the people who live there, and we want to make sure that all Albertans are protected and looked after no matter where they live. Our time, of course, is limited, so I thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to pass it on to my good friend, uh, the Minister of Justice, Tyler Shandro, to provide uh, a few remarks. Thank you. Well, thanks, Minister Ellis. Uh, thanks, everyone. Uh, pleasure to be uh, speaking and engaging with all of you tonight. As uh, Minister Ellis noted, the, the purpose of tonight is to give all of you an opportunity to ask us questions, so I'll keep my opening remarks brief. Uh, but I, I did want to touch on a couple of issues and recent developments that have uh, been of particular concern for uh, rural Albertans, just to, to frame the discussion. Uh, first, there's the Alberta Firearms Act. That just passed through the legislature this week. <clears throat> this is a, a piece of legislation that I'm particularly proud to have introduced. It's a response to amendments being proposed to federal firearm uh, uh, laws. And the, the amendments that uh, are, are um, being sold as uh, part of an effort to, to fight gun crime uh, apparently, the federal government feels that the best way to do that is to target law-abiding firearms owners. But in reality, most gun owners see it for what it really is, yet another federal attempt to extend its authority over yet another aspect of Albertans' lives. Once the this Alberta Firearms Act receives royal assent, Alberta will then have clarified its ability to assert its jurisdiction over intrusive federal actions. There's a a similar impulse behind another piece of legislation our government passed, namely changes to our trespassing laws that uh, could potentially see the federal government uh, being penalized uh, if there are federal employees uh, entering the property of Albertans without a lawful reason. Now, to be clear, that doesn't prevent law enforcement from doing what they're legally authorized to do. Uh, This legislation is about protecting property rights, not limiting police powers, And in any trespassing situation, property owners should call law enforcement to deal with trespassers. Sometimes the media describe, you know, the issues that I've I've talked about so far as being niche or partisan issues. But I I think these are actually matters that the entire province should be able to get behind. And when the federal government tries to override our, our basic property rights here in Alberta, everyone in the province ought to feel concerned, even if they they don't own property or, or never have held a firearm in, in their hands. But these are just two examples of how our government has been listening to Albertans and living up to our commitment to stand up for, uh, for Albertans. Uh, looking forward to hearing your questions tonight, taking, uh, talking more about what we've been doing uh, to make our justice system more fair and responsive to everyone in the province. And uh, thank you very much. Back over to you, uh, Ethan. Minister Milliken. Uh, Thank you very much uh, for having me here, and good evening, everyone. I'm obviously very, very pleased uh, to be joining tonight's Telephone Town Hall and to get the opportunity to answer any questions that you might have uh, regarding mental health and addiction. So uh, before, though, we um, get to questions, 
Uh, I just want to quickly mention that the mental health, a few, a few overview points. I just do want to mention quickly that the mental health and well-being of all Albertans is not only a priority for me, but obviously for our entire government. That's why um, we've been making record investments in mental health supports and addiction treatment so uh, we can support more Albertans in their pursuit of recovery. Uh, if you've seen me at all uh, in the legislature lately talking, I often mention that Budget 2023 invests more than $275 million in Alberta's mental health and addiction budget, which is a huge increase over just even last year, about 37% over last year. So year over year, 37% growth, because it was 200 before that. And then very significantly uh, more than the, I believe it was 87 million provided for mental health and addiction in just 2019. So that's about a 220% increase. So we've really shown just how important mental health and addiction issues and the supports uh, that flow from that. Um, flow to that and just how important that really is. So um, this, of course, this increase uh, in funding provides the resources required to continue addressing the addiction crisis and, and of course, further building the recovery-oriented system, systems of care across Alberta. So having mentioned Budget 2023, it prioritizes funding for addiction and mental health supports across the continuum of care, including prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery. Specifically, a couple specific line items would be $30 million uh, for addiction prevention and intervention supports and services, $132 million for treatment and recovery, $30 million for services that reduce harm, and more than $45 million for child and youth mental health and recovery initiatives. Uh, when it comes, of course, to public safety and mental health and addiction, we are working closely together to implement a fair, firm, and compassionate approach to addiction and mental health. And I just also want to mention in the previous comment that I made with regards to $45 million for child and youth mental health and recovery initiatives, we have talked to so many parents, so many teachers, so many uh, family members, uh, and it's been very, very clear that youth mental health uh, is, a, is, a, is a huge priority for us, and it's one of the, the top points that was put on my mandate letter, actually, by uh, the Premier. So when I mention fair, firm, and compassionate approaches to addiction and mental health, when we, when we refer to fair, it's to the communities and businesses that face these issues every day, ensuring that the safety of Albertans is our top priority. Firm is with the illness of addiction itself and the behaviors of people that are uh, obviously a danger to themselves and others as a result of their drug use. And then compassionate to the individuals who are struggling with mental health and addiction, who of course require our care and support uh, in their pursuit of recovery. So um, thanks again for having me. Obviously, I look forward to speaking more to what we're doing in coordination with police and public safety to respond to these issues. But for now, um, I'll take the opportunity to turn it over for questions. Thank you, Ministers Ellis, Shandro, and Milliken. For those of you just joining us, my name is Ethan LeCavalier-Kidney, and I'm your host for this evening's virtual town hall meeting. Joining me today are Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Services, Mike Ellis, Minister of Justice, Tyler Shandro, and Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, Nicholas Milliken. Tonight, we are talking about public safety and emergency services in Alberta. If you have a question for any of these speakers, just press star three on your phone now to enter the queue. Now, let's get to our first question of the night. This question is from Amy, in Fort McMurray, and it's for Minister Ellis. Minister, your government has talked about the Alberta Police Service for many months. What is the current status on this? 
Well, uh, Ethan, and thank you, and uh, Amy, thank you very much. I actually very much appreciate the question. I, I think it's important for all those in rural Alberta uh, who are listening right now. Let's uh, let's uh, you know let's talk about this. So, uh, first of all, let me just say this: nobody has more respect for the men and women who take calls to service um, than me. Uh, I used to be a police officer, served uh, certainly for uh, over 12 years in the Calgary Police Service. And let me just be crystal clear uh, that, you know, as we go forward, um, you know, it's always keeping those wonderful men and women who protect us on a daily basis in mind as decisions are being made. However, uh, let me just uh, ask, uh, answer the question for Amy. There is no decision that has been made in regards to an Alberta Provincial uh, Police Service. Um, in fact, uh, we've uh, taken a bit of a, a different approach here. Really, it's about empowering the municipalities. Um, which is why that we have um, um, uh, grants that are available to municipalities so that if they are interested in uh, seeing what is going to work best uh, for their community, um, they, all they have to do is apply for that grant and really a, basically an independent study occurs and uh, it may determine a number of things. It may determine um, that, uh, you know, their own police service might be the right approach. It may determine that is a regional approach. It may determine that the current model is totally suiting that community. And I think it's about having that respect for all those municipalities and that we need to do what is in the best uh, interest of them. But that being said, as well, we have to understand that the current uh, policing model does expire in 2032. And uh, the reality is that the federal government has signal checked on several different occasions that they are looking at getting away from contract policing in Canada. And uh, that's why you have uh, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, uh, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, all provinces that have contract policing looking at alternative models right now. In fact, even in British Columbia, an all-party committee uh, consisting of uh, Green Party members, NDP members, as well as uh, Liberal members have all uh, concurred that uh, looking at something other than the current model is, is something that they need to do. So, uh, you know, Alberta has been kind of last uh, to the table here, and, uh, and that's why we're trying to empower the communities as to what is uh, best uh, for them. Um, you know, in fact, I, if, and I, don't, I don't want to go on too long, but I think it's important also to know that we do have a community uh, in Alberta that uh, was in the contract policing uh, model um, uh, where there was that 70-30 split. Uh, they opted out and then they tried to opt back in and the federal government is not allowing them uh, to come back in. So they're actually paying the 100%. So I'm working with them in order to uh, find out a solution that's best for them. But we, there's a wide range of opinions out there. Obviously, there's some people that want to stick with the RCMP. Some people have notified me that they absolutely want an Alberta Police Service and then kind of everything in between. So, again, we're trying to empower the municipalities. But thanks, Amy. Appreciate the question. Thank you, Minister. Just a reminder for anyone on the line, if you have a question for any of the speakers, just press star three on your phone now to enter the queue. Now let's get to our first caller of the night. On the line, we have James from Slave Lake. James from Slave Lake, you are live. Uh, please go ahead with your question. It's actually from Sylvan Lake. Hello? Yep, thank Hi, James. Sorry. Yeah, I, I understood that uh, a few years ago when I looked into policing in Sylvan Lake because our crime is so high there, that uh, 
we in the town, our taxes pay for 90% of the facilities, wages, salaries for the RCMP. Yet uh, when we have emergencies, quite often the RCMP are out in the rural community dealing with issues there because they don't have a police force out there. They rely on ours. So I'm wondering how you're going to rectify that so that uh, the taxpayers that are paying for most of the policing service are getting what they pay for, and the rural, maybe you put more officers in a different location specifically for that? James, a great question. Uh, look, we're, we're trying to, right now, we're trying to augment uh, the RCMP right now under the current, obviously, policing model that we have. Uh, one of the things that we had done starting in uh, 2021 was uh, to give the ability of the sheriffs to do uh, impaired driving, for instance. So, you know, they were able to, I think over a one-year period, I think they did over 2,200 impaired. So that, so to put that in a little bit of perspective, that was uh, taking, uh, you know, uh, or sorry, should I say, it's, it's allowing an RCMP member to be available to a call to service as opposed to having them to deal with that impaired driving. So that's one step. Uh, in budget 2023, uh, of course, I... Um, uh, wanted to augment the RCMP and the current model that we have right now uh, by um, empowering those uh, sheriffs to to attend calls to service. Um, I mean, you, I think you brought up an excellent point. You know, a lot of people don't realize how big uh, rural Alberta can be in some of these jurisdictions. And, um, you know, sometimes when somebody's two, three hours away, I mean, that's you know that's that's a, a pretty far distance, especially in a a 911 call sort of situation. So, if by happenstance there happens to be a sheriff that's nearby, uh, and we have them trained up to be fully empowered police officers, you know my expectation is for them to attend that call, uh, to make sure that the scene is safe. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're taking anything away from from the RCMP. That means we're just trying to assist them to make sure uh, that the RCMP have those types of supports. I've said this very publicly as well. I personally don't care, uh, as a former police officer myself, I do not care what the uniform is. When somebody in rural Alberta is calling 911, my expectation is that somebody attends that call and they attend it in, in a, a reasonable time frame. So um, thank you very much, James, for that question. Thank you, Minister. Uh, for the next question, uh, on the line we have Mike from Cold Lake, and he has a question for Minister Chandro. Uh, Mike from Cold Lake, you are live. Can you please go ahead with your question? Yes, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I just have a couple of quick questions here. Um, I guess, what can citizens of Alberta do to change the existing laws to defend themselves and their property? Now, this is in the case of perhaps um, the police services cannot arrive quick enough. That's my question. Thank you. It, it, you're, you're wondering then. Sorry, I may not have, have understood then. If, if there are, if there's legislation we can pass as a province to ourselves to deal with this situation, or do we lose the caller already? Hello. Hi. Yeah. Sorry. Do you, do you mind clarifying that? I, I may not have totally well, understood. Okay. So, I guess what can we as citizens do to change the existing laws to defend ourselves and our property? Because we have certain laws with the criminal code, and oh, how does that go about, right? Because sometimes, listen, I admire our RCMP. They do a fabulous job, but they seem to be undermanned. And um, sometimes, 
I mean, we've had it happen where, you know, we sometimes don't get the services for an hour to the location, and you have um, homeowners that are dealing with something that is beyond their uh, capabilities. So I'm just wondering, is there anything we can do uh, to change that through legislation? Got it. Well, thanks for the question. Uh, and I, well, I guess I would start by by saying, you know, the, the rules for whether you commit a crime, uh, what, how long your sentence is, and, and whether you you get bail. These are all rules that are in the criminal code, and those are all uh, fully in the purview of the federal government. The amendments to the criminal code can only be made by them and not not by us. So it is frustrating for provinces uh, when we see a uh, federal government not being responsive to our communities. Um, we saw, for example, in 2019, the federal government made drastic changes to the bail regime here in Canada, which made it darn near impossible to hold anyone on, in pretrial custody. Uh, that, that meant that our communities, not just here in Alberta, but uh, throughout Canada, have become uh, less safe. Um, and one of the reasons why we've been advocating with the federal government to to sit down, hear us. There was an emergency meeting that Minister Ellis and I went to a couple of weeks ago in Ottawa, bringing this up with them. Now, uh, I, I don't think that they're committing to going as far as I'd, I'd like them to go, but at least we have had a commitment from them that there will be legislative changes to the criminal code uh, for as this an example. So I, I think we can uh, you know, advocate for sensible, common sense changes to uh, to the criminal code, but we also have to remember that uh, we as a province will do our end. We we have um, uh, increased the number of uh, crown prosecutors throughout the province. We work with our crown prosecutors as well. We updated uh, what's known as the crown prosecution manual. We did that in, in June of last year, and we amended it to include requiring crown prosecutors to consider whether the use of force to defend in the criminal code uh, should preclude prosecution against victims of crime. And that consideration must be given to the role of the individual in the incident, including whether they are the victim of the crime. And if an incident does occur in a remote or rural location and self-defense is raised, a prosecutor may give consideration to location. Uh, now, we, we can't direct our prosecutors. They are independent, they are neutral, they're making decisions on their own. Um, but we can give them guidance through um, documents like the Crown Prosecution Manual. So the province is going to do our end to to hear advocacy like yours uh, by by trying to to make amendments like this and, and to to ensure that there's some kind of accommodation. Hope that answers your question. But thank you very much for that feedback. Well, thank you, Minister. Uh, just a reminder to everyone on the line that if you have a question for any of the speakers, just press star three on your phone now to enter the queue. We're going to take our next question. Uh, on the line, we have Chris from Grand Prairie. And Chris has a question for Minister Ellis. Uh, Chris, uh, you are live. Please go ahead with your question. Uh, good evening. My question is in regards to the recent uh, decision to go towards a municipal police force in the city of Grand Prairie. I'm a resident of the county, which is, relies on shared services from the RCMP within the city. And I'm wondering what the expectation is to the impact on services to those of us that live in the county once the transition is completed. 
Chris, uh, thanks very much for the question. Uh, you know, I've been talking uh, with the uh, county, certainly advise them if they wish to um, look at uh, at uh, taking one of the um, the grants to see what is going to best uh, be best for their uh, community, which is obviously where you're, you live. Um, but going back to the um, what's going on in, in the, the Grand Prairie uh, community, for instance, um, look, I mean, they they did uh, they did an independent study. Uh, they uh, it, it came back uh, with a recommendation uh, to uh, look uh, towards a a provincial sorry a, um, a municipal police service. Um, they held uh, many town halls. They achieved buy-in uh, for the most part from their community, and they did a very robust um, and uh, thorough uh, look as to what is going to best suit their community. What they determined. Uh, was that they would have uh, more oversight, uh, more accountability. Um, uh, they determined that uh, they would probably have more um, uh, better community response when it comes to uh, calls to service. And when the dust settles, uh, what they determined as well is that they actually would be saving some money. Um, so all those things came into consideration. Now, when you're talking about you know, what goes on in Grand Prairie versus uh, the county. Uh, the Grand Prairie, uh, they've also uh, ensured in their plan that they're going to have necessary support services. So support services would include your, your, you know, they'll have their own tactical team, they'll have their own canine team, they'll have their own, you know, ident section. And, uh, and then, you know, what I would hope is that they are uh, no different than any other, any other municipal police service uh, in Alberta to work uh, collaboratively. Uh, if the county does continue to uh, go uh, uh, and be served by the RCMP, or if the county chooses to take uh, another approach, um, I just want to make sure that uh, you know everybody's working um, kind of in sync, and uh, that is something that they do in Calgary, Edmonton, Lacombe, Tabor. Uh, and all the other uh, municipal, municipal police services. So, yeah, really, it's just about uh, cross or sorry, cross cooperation between uh, police services. Thank you, Minister. Uh, for our next question, uh, we have Alvin from Hinton, and Alvin has a question for well, both ministers Milliken and Ellis. Uh, Alvin, um, oh. Uh, sorry, I've got the question here. Um, Mr. Milliken, regarding uh, drugs and homelessness, why is nobody making positive uh, movement to stop the crime that comes with it? Uh, thank you, Alvin, uh, for the question um, regarding drugs and homelessness. Uh, why is nobody making positive uh movement to stop the crime that comes with it. And I think, I think we absolutely are. We are, um, as kind of mentioned in my opening comments, um, fair, firm, and compassionate. We want to be fair to the community. We want, and these, these are, we all know that, uh, individuals who are sometimes in the throes of addiction or, or, um, living rough on the streets, uh, can account for some of the violent crime in the community. And obviously, one of the best things that we can do for these individuals is to help uh, get individuals into treatment and recovery. That's, that's literally why we, I think our government is, is, has essentially doubled down and is spending so much uh, with regards to building out 
uh, treatment capacity for these individuals. Uh, places for them to go is really like the best the, the best way to look at it. A lot of the time, these individuals end up either in um, in uh, hospitals or in jails, and those don't necessarily offer the correct available treatment opportunities to deal with the root problems here. So um, as you may know, we are currently in the process of building out recovery communities across the whole province. Uh, initially, we kind of looked at some of the areas where there wasn't very much treatment capacity. Uh, as you probably know, uh, previous governments have, in, in my view anyways, uh, really um, woefully unfunded treatment capacity and recovery opportunities for individuals. So initially, when we first got in in 2019, we saw some areas of the province that uh, didn't have, uh, if anything, in some, in some cases, capacity at all. I'm thinking of Lethbridge, I'm thinking of uh, down in the, in the southern parts of Alberta. And so we obviously really doubled down on making sure that we could have uh, this recovery capacity um, and the capital for that uh, in the area. So. Uh, just to, to name off a few, we've got nine of these recovery communities that we're building right now. We've got Red Deer has just very, very recently um, had uh, completed construction. We'll be actually taking new clients uh, right away here but within the next month, I believe. Uh, Lethbridge and Blood Tribe area, both uh, um, spring and end of the year probably, uh, respectively. Um, we've got the gun community one as well. Um, and of course, uh, Calgary Red Deer. But then recently, in the new budget, with this, uh, with the the significant growth in spending that we've allotted through budget 2023, we also added three more for Central, North, and then one in Grand Prairie, as well. So I, I think it, when you're dealing with this whole issue of homelessness and addiction and the crime that follows from it or flows from it or is derived by it. Uh, Treating the, the root causes can be one of the best and most marginally beneficial ways uh, to ensure that you can help with regards to community safety, et cetera. And in, and in many cases, especially if you take the homeless population, in many cases, uh, they'll have um, often mental health issues uh, concurrently with addiction issues. So getting to the root of those issues, getting them uh, into treatment, and then through that, also providing all the supports with regards to, 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 to make sure that they can have recovery from any mental health issues as well uh, is probably one thing that I think I'm, I'm very proud uh, of our government for, for putting so much emphasis on. So thank you, Minister uh, Milliken. Uh, sorry, it's uh, Minister Mike Ellis here. I'm just going to just uh, supplement what Minister Milliken has said, and I think it's important for everybody in the audience to understand this. Um, what the Alberta government has done here is embarked on what is known as a recovery-oriented system of care. So you can substitute the word recovery for wellness or human or holistic, but the point is it's a system of care. There's no place in North America that has a system of care that is in place. So whereby that is somebody entering in the system, goes on a journey and path to wellness and exit the system in a better place from which they started. As it relates to crime, uh, and of course, uh, as I mentioned, you know, as a former police officer, it disproportionately 
uh, or um, drugs is a contributing factor which usually leads somebody in some way into the uh, justice system, whether it becomes a, uh, a factor when it comes to motivation as to why they, they commit that crime, uh, do the severe addiction or a combination of that mental illness as well. So as Minister Milliken indicated, he indicated all these things that we're doing, doing and what it is is to help people that have what is known as a neurobiological illness, which is the addiction itself, so that they can actually get treatment uh, and then recovery so that when they exit the system, it's not into the cycle of abuse. It's not into the recidivism that typically has happened in every jurisdiction in North America. Now, let me just further add that this system, which is now being recognized internationally as the Alberta model, is recognized in, in Stanford and Harvard and Yale. It, uh, there are jurisdictions in other countries in Europe that are all, and, and as well as other jurisdictions in Canada, that are all looking at what we're doing, in, uh, doing here in Alberta because it is truly, one can argue, the real, one of the first real holistic uh, models to help people to stop that recidivism and help people who do indeed have severe mental health and addictions issues. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you, ministers. Just a reminder for everyone on the line, if you have a question for any of these speakers, just press star three on your phone now to enter the queue. We will now uh, take our next caller. On the line, we have Millie uh, from High River, and Millie has a question for Minister Milliken. Uh, Millie, you are live. Please go ahead with your question. Thank you. Uh, this very much follows up with what you have just been saying. I have a uh, grandson, actually, who has just come out of recovery. And my concern is the fact that he was in recovery for one month. And being able to come out of there, he seems to be in very good spirits. However, my concern is in order to be able to follow up with the continued recovery of his brain, and uh, the root causes as to why he felt he needed to to take uh, drugs in the first place and to be able to is to what kind of follow-up are you going to have because I understand right now he was basically told okay you're on your own now so he needs to have follow-up with professionals in order to be able to continue his journey of recovery as well as being able to find employment or people who are going to be hiring him in order to be able to support himself and uh, gain some self-respect back again. Um, that is my main concern uh, with regards to that. Um, I also have another question with regards to uh, some of the problems that I have been I personally have not experienced but have heard about that on the sea train that the number of homeless people who uh, during the time of the very severe weather are using the sea trains themselves as a place to get warm and unfortunately uh, they urinificate on these um, areas as well. If we had some sort of public toilets that were available for people to be able to go and use when they need to be able to use the washrooms, and you know, and just the protection, I think, again, on the actual trains themselves of some of the more dangerous situations that are happening and people being harmed on the platforms when they're waiting for these areas. Those are my two questions. 
Millie, uh, thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much uh, for sharing um, your personal uh, story with regards to your grandson. My heart goes out to you. And if we were in the same place, I would give you a hug. It is. Uh, I just want to. I just want to. I can't state that enough. That um, I do appreciate the fact that we are starting to. Um, we're starting to talk about this stuff a lot more. And as we talk about it more, uh, people find out that there's more resources. And as we find out that there's more resources, then we build out what's often referred to as recovery capital in the community. So opportunities for people uh, pre, during, post-treatment uh, to receive um, the help that they need. Because as you, you used the word, actually, Mel, you used the word journey. And I think that a lot of people are really beginning to recognize that recovery is uh, a lifelong journey. Um, it's something that uh, individuals who are in recovery deal with every single day and manage every single day. I would go to your part, part of your question talked about, uh, I believe, kind of following up with um, uh, individuals as they kind of, once they're out and then into the community, et cetera, and all that kind of stuff. What I would say is, especially as we build out these recovery communities, these recovery communities, they are holistic in nature. Um, they make sure that individuals, for, for, for first things first, uh, when, as we build out these recovery communities, one thing you should know too is individuals can stay at these ones for up to a year. Uh, they will, and it's free, um, they will be surrounded by other individuals who are experiencing similar issues. They will spend essentially like half the day doing group and other types of therapies and then uh, half the day uh, rebuilding their, their life skills um, and employment training, et cetera. One of the things that I, and I don't know the specific circumstances of your, of your grandson, but what I've seen, I've obviously talked to so many uh, uh, individuals who've gone through um, uh, treatment communities such as this, such as these, and uh, it's just, it's one of those things where they, um, they are always working towards trying to uh, ensure that they're better and that they um, have the supports that they need. One of the things, though, that I should say is our government is actually rolling out um, a platform, an online platform called My Recovery Plan. My Recovery Plan literally will have the ability to assess individuals as they progress through their recovery journey and see how they're getting better or what things are helping them specifically. And these are all touch points to ensure that we're, we're, we're making sure that we don't just basically, you know, put somebody like in your grandson's situation, uh, quote unquote, sort of like, you're on your own now. We want to make sure that those communities are around there to help them and, and keep them there. Not only that, I have personally seen that a lot of these uh, community settings, they also have alumni groups and things like that. So these people become, in many, in many cases, lifelong friends and uh, the support network uh, just builds. So with that, I think there was also a question with regards to C-Train and I'm a, I'm a Calgary MLA, so I really do appreciate the opportunity. Uh, however, I do think that there's a minister here yeah. who actually just did a tour uh, today through Calgary. So I'll pass it over to Mike. Uh, I did, and thank you so much for the, the, the questions. Um, thank you, Mr. Milliken. Yeah, I mean, a couple, couple components of that. Uh, I think one you touched on uh, was C-Train safety. 
Um, I was out and about with uh, uh, the sheriffs in the Calgary Police Service uh, today. Um, as you're fully aware, we deployed uh, sheriffs um, um, through uh, Chief uh, Sheikh, uh, who is the uh, chief of the uh, sheriffs, uh, into uh, both Calgary and Edmonton. Uh, we've had uh, some actually some very, um, uh, you know, very successful, we'll say, responses from the, the community. In fact, I would argue the biggest complaint that I continually get is uh, we want more uh, in order to uh, feel even safer. Uh, talking to many people that were riding the trains even today, um, they appreciated A, our presence, but B, uh, they were very much insistent um, that uh, they would like to see a, a constant um, uh, presence of law enforcement officers on those uh, trains. Uh, you touched a little bit about the uh, social and civil disorder. Um, again, it's not about putting handcuffs on people. It's about coming upon those people who are vulnerable, uh, making sure uh, that um, that uh, the necessary resources, which are quite enormous and vast, uh, are, are uh, available to those uh, individuals to actually get them the help that they need. Uh, we also, this government, and I know uh, Minister Nixon, I know he's not here at the moment here, but you know, one of the things we did is we created 24-7 uh, uh, shelter, shelter spaces, essentially day spaces, and you know, that's kind of where you know, the beds go away and the coffee comes out, and we kind of have the wraparound services to make sure that um, you know, when, somebody, um, when somebody comes in that they discuss how to, better, uh, you know, how, to, how, to, how, how to move them in a path to a, a better life. So um, thank you very much for that question. Thank you, Ministers. Uh, we'll go to our next caller on the line. We have Wesley from Lacombe, and I believe Wesley has a question for Minister Shandro. Uh, Wesley, you are live. Please go ahead with your question. Yes, I was just uh, uh, wondering, like, basically with the new gun law, uh, where's the uh, like, where's the difference between like our automatics and the standard rifles and uh, and who's going to be eligible for to have a rifle along with uh, why why are they trying to take a, take the rifles away from people who enjoy hunting and uh, other like shooting activities? Sure, uh, thanks, Wesley. Um, so good questions. Uh, so there's been quite a lot of change that happened in May of 2020, and there was a long list of firearms that were not mechanically different than uh, in, in, you know, a bunch of the firearms that uh, were not included in, in this ordering council. But they prohibited a number of firearms that they they coined a new phrase. They called it assault style. They made up this word to make it sound like these firearms were, were scary, even though they're not mechanically different. Uh, it is a long list, so it, it's, uh, it's not easy for Canadians to go through and, and understand uh, whether their firearms might be included in what's prohibited now or not. Uh, but if you need help, uh, I do encourage you to reach out to our chief firearms officer and, and her office for them to get your help or get help for you to understanding if you have any firearms that, that might be now prohibited. There, the amnesty is proposed to end this October, although we understand that the federal government, because they don't have the resources or the wherewithal, really, to be able to follow through in the confiscation program that they're proposing, uh, that it sounds like they will be extending that amnesty beyond this October. Um, but it is a long list. Uh, that, that list has now 
uh, going to be confirmed in, in new legislation that they're proposing called C-21, uh, as, as well as potentially some other firearms that would also uh, be prohibited. Um, we're not quite clear yet. Um, some of the amendments they walked back, but there's still a bit of a concern. You're right, they, they are targeting law-abiding Canadians rather than focusing on, on uh, gun crime and, and improving safety in our communities. Um, so it is a concern, and that's, that's why we're, as a province, advocating uh, against this confiscation program, because it really is, uh, at the end of the amnesty, it will be criminalizing thousands of Albertans uh, overnight, really just for possessing legally acquired property. But thank you very much for the question, Wesley. Sorry, it's Minister Ellis here. I just want to supplement what Minister Shandro said. Uh, again, excellent question. And, and just to build on what Minister Shandro said, look, the, the data that we get back from our Alberta law enforcement response team is, is actually very clear. Um, the, the, it's not lawful gun owners that are committing these crimes. It is uh, gun, these are guns that are being smuggled across the border or they're being stolen from lawful gun owners. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you, everyone. Um, just a reminder, if you're on the call, uh, if you have any questions for any of the speakers, just to press star three on your phone uh, now to enter the queue. And our next question uh, comes from Larry from Grand Prairie, uh, and it's a question for Ministers Ellis and Milliken, uh, and I'm just going to read it out here. How are you keeping people safe when responding to mental health calls? It can't just be social workers responding when people are dangerous. Uh, that's a great question, and I think, uh, I think you and I are on the same page, my friend. Um, look, um, when mental health is very complex. You have everything from feeling a little bit depressed uh, to obviously somebody that is uh, uh, you know, paranoid uh, schizophrenic, as an example, and everything in between. Now again, as somebody who was a law enforcement officer, I can tell you that not only have I dealt with somebody who is a paranoid schizophrenic, but I've also dealt with somebody who's a paranoid schizophrenic who's on, uh, on crystal meth. And I can tell you that um, unfortunately, uh, I know there's some people that may not want to hear this, but unfortunately when, you, when, you're, when you're sending in somebody who is not uh, trained in the, the use of force in order to deal with somebody uh, who cannot be negotiated with, that cannot be reasoned with, you have to be able to restrain that individual. When people, when people on the streets, you know, look at somebody who's, you know, banging their head against the wall, uh, or, or you know, you, you hear about random, you know, let's say random stabbings or random acts of of, of physical violence. Um, that unfortunately is typically somebody that has that combination of that severe mental health issue that I talked about, but more likely it has to do with the crystal meth. And uh, let me just be very clear. There are no safe drugs out there, and there certainly by no means is any safe crystal meth. So the police need to be that pointy end of the stick. The police need to go in there. They need to make the scene safe. One that, once that drug exits the body, then fine. Then we can get the necessary medical supports. We can get the detox. We can get the social services there to help that individual. But I'll pass it to Minister Milliken if he wants to supplement. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Minister Ellis. Uh, I, I, I can't say enough that uh, police and other first responders are obviously uh, extremely valued uh, community partners. Uh, and when it comes to dealing with mental health calls, 
uh, equipping police with the best tools possible that we possibly can uh, can be extremely valuable. Our government is actually rolling out, uh, already started, it's called Health I Am, and so it's basically a, a tool that's available to police officers uh, that in many respects can provide some real-time information with regards to perhaps the call, et cetera, any information that may be there, along with other tools and support mechanisms such as uh, help with regards to uh, how to how to decrease some of the potential uh, aspects of, well, the potential of violence and things of that, and that nature, sort of talking the situation down as well. So we're essentially doing, yeah, exactly. Perfect. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, ministers. Uh, for our next question, we have Clifford from Red Deer, who I believe has a question for Minister Shandro. Uh, Clifford, you're now live. Can you please go ahead and ask your question? Hi there. Thank you. Uh, I, I think it's good that the government is pouring dollars in trying to deal with these issues and challenges. But my question is, what are we doing to be in being uh, proactive and doing things that would be preventive to avoid or decrease the problems that have developed? Sure, uh, Clifford, thank you. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, is there? Uh, go ahead, Minister. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, well, I, I'll, I'll let. Uh, when we're talking about prevention, a lot of that is going to go to, to the other two ministers, and I'll let them speak about that. But um, maybe just to talk a little bit about Budget 23 and, and how we're investing, at least in the justice system, for, for our budget. Um, and, and some of it is preventative, but it's, it's being innovative to, to be able to make sure that the, the justice system is responsive to the needs of Albertans. It's going to be there for them. Uh, people do have access to justice. It's, it's you know, the modernizing of the way that the criminal defense bars pay through legal aid and increasing that tariff rate for them. It's hiring more prosecutors, being more innovative in, in how prosecutors are assisting the police um, with the pre-charge assessment program that we're having 16 new prosecutors uh, to be able to work with police and giving them advice before uh, charges are laid. But, you know, working with the, the prosecutors and increasing their pay, we've actually got their turnover. Uh, used to hover between 8 to 12%, usually around 11 And it's now the lowest it's been in 10 years. It's now down to 4.1%. And it's because we're, we're working with the prosecutors to empower them to, to do their jobs. Uh, we've got 55 more prosecutors working in the province now than under previous government. Um, so those are some of the ways in which we, we in the Justice Department are, are trying to be reactive and, and preventative. Uh, but with uh, maybe to better answer your question, it may fall to Ministers Milliken and Ellis. So I'll pass over to you guys, Mike and Nick. Uh, thank you, Ms. Minister Shander. This is uh, Minister Milliken. Uh, happy to jump in. Um, what's kind of been alluded to prior uh, to this with the Alberta model, this recovery-oriented system of care that we're building out uh, in Alberta, is pinned on basically four pillars. Uh, prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery. Prevention is... Uh, absolutely top of mind with regards to this to this government and especially with my ministry we know that individuals uh, the acuity of mental health and addiction issues can increase over time so uh, any 
any dollars or any work and services that are being provided at that prevention stage can often uh, bear significant fruit in the future. So we, we, you talked a little bit about throwing money and stuff. We've done quite a bit with regards to building out some of the services at that prevention stage, uh, whether it's even just, uh, I always tell people, if, if you're ever feeling any sort of uh, mental health issues or if you're looking for services, uh, even local services, uh, wherever you are in the province, I always just tell people, start with two one. We've built that system out uh, in order to make sure that it offers uh, timely uh, access to ensure that people um, can get the services that they need. Also, uh, Counseling Alberta, we've now made it so that we're using um, in-person, of course, with regards to it, but also virtual to make sure that individuals around the province can get the counseling services that they need. Um, so, you're very right. Prevention is extremely valuable, and as stated, this government is taking real steps to try to make sure uh, that it's available for individuals. Uh, thank you, Minister. Uh, to Mr. Mike Ellis here. So, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly we're people. A couple, couple things here. Certainly, if there is a young person that does kind of, um, okay, say, make an error in judgment and uh, does fall into the justice system. Uh, rest assured, it's not about, again, it's not about, um, you know, prosecuting them and making sure that they're uh, prosecuted to the full extent of the law. There's actually, um, you know, quite a few youth uh, diversion programs that are available, and I can tell you that they have a very, very high success rate um, in ensuring that uh, that person, uh, if they do fall into contact with the justice system, actually doesn't reoffend. Uh, one of the other things that uh, this government has done is is we've expanded on what is known as the Integrated School Support Program. You know, there's a lot of uh, folks that may believe that uh, that uh, the uh, you know police are, need to be out of the schools. Well, I, you know, I, I actually take a, a complete opposite perspective on that. Um, let me just say this: the police are meant in those schools to be to be mentors for those young people. It's not about. It's not. Let me just be clear: not about putting handcuffs on those kids. It is about ensuring that those kids have a role model to look up to. That they know that if they are in need of help, guess what? Those those officers are there to help them and help their families into supports. So into in the integrated school support program, which actually initially started in Calgary, and I believe that we've expanded to a number of jurisdictions all throughout uh, Alberta. Uh, uh, what they did is they've taken a lot of the um, uh, the, the uh, school systems in Alberta that uh, tend to have kids um, who were getting, we'll say, in, into trouble or were having uh, problems, uh, you know, family life or maybe not, um, you know, getting involved in the justice system. And the purpose around this is to provide them with the services uh, for to ensure that the police officer is there to A, be a mentor to that child. They make sure that this is a social worker. They make sure that they have some form of mental health supports available. Uh, they make sure that there is a nutritionist so that there is no child that is going to go hungry and no family that is going to go hungry. They make sure that uh, there's a, a, a physical uh, fitness uh, program. Uh, that is available for that child. So it truly becomes a holistic approach. And I can tell you that as we've continued to expand that program, which we have in Alberta and, and in, in certain areas actually within rural Alberta as well, um, we are certainly uh, hoping that um, if, if given certainly another opportunity, that this is something that we would like to expand to virtually every school in, in Alberta because that holistic approach is what is best for that child. And I can tell you from the Calgary perspective, 
Um, these kids are not only uh, graduating high school, but they're going on to university, which is phenomenal. And let me just add one thing, and, and this is what's very important. Uh, if anybody says, no, the, the police officer is scary, and this is part of the paradigm shift that you heard me talk about earlier. The police are not to be an, a marmer of the state. They are to be an extension of the community. They're a reflection of the community. These are people that are here to help. The, the kids need to know that those children, that, that those officers are there to help them. And I will tell you this, if the police officer isn't there, the gang member will be. And that's where these kids start to go down the bad path. Thank you. Thank you, ministers. Uh, our next question is from Andrew uh, from Lethbridge. And I believe Andrew's question is for Ministers Ellis and Milliken. Um, Andrew, you're now live. Can, please go ahead with your question. Howdy. Uh, my big question, I, I've been listening to your discussions, and some of it sounds interesting, and some of it sounds like new program, different name. You know, Alt Measures was around. June teachers used to be around. Family resource officers, like all of that's been around. But we're still running into the same problem. Um, we have a lot of people that are addicted on the street. We have a lot of people with mental health on the street. We've got a lot of kids that are falling through the cracks, especially in southern Alberta. We have two of the biggest native reserves here, and everyone sort of comes into town for the fun. Um, my big question is, what are you going to be doing um, if, if, if you're going to be helping people on the street? Um, the Mental Health Act sort of restricts what you can do. You know, the best you can do after fighting with them is get them on a CTO order. Um, but every six months, they're going to be going into, you know, they're going to be reviewed. They're going to have their lawyer there. And a lot of them, if they don't want to be on CTO, you know, they, you know, they're going to get off and, and, and nothing changes. Um, again, with um, a lot of the people that just choose to be on the streets and choose to be homeless, um, you know, you know, what do you do there? Um, you know, we, we've got a lot of um, provincial statutes and bylaws that no one enforces because, you know, everyone goes, well, you know, you just want to throw a poor person in jail. But, you know, if you start picking and choosing what laws you're going to enforce, you know, where do you draw the line? Um, you know, a little old lady, you know, speeding down the street gets her ticket. If she can't afford the ticket, um, you know, it, it, it goes into judgment. She loses her license because she can't pay it, but no one takes that into consideration you know, then you get the old man that's living on the street, and because he's drunk and on the street, no one tickets him. Um, you know, so what's what's the new program going to do to address this? So I'll start this. I kind of alluded to it at the start that um, previous governments have, uh, with regards to treatment capacity, uh, it's been. I think I think I used the word woefully underfunded. It has been, and so we we know that uh, there is, we, we believe as a government that anybody who is experiencing mental health or addiction issues should be able to and can receive treatment to enter into recovery and pursue uh, a purposeful life. What we don't necessarily have because it just was unfunded was the places and the treatment capacity for the individuals to go to. So we are our government has obviously doubled down with regards to um, building out these spaces. I've kind of talked about the nine recovery communities, but that's not just it. We also knew that there were spaces that weren't being utilized effectively, and we've actually managed to, we, when we first came into power, 
um, in 2019, we, we did so with a promise to build out 4,000 new treatment and recovery spaces. So that was, that was grand at the time, and a lot of people said that it couldn't be done. And we've actually surpassed that. We've more than doubled it. We've actually built out 10,000 across the province. Um, and not just in, like, Edmonton and Calgary. I, I believe just off the back of the kind of napkin math, I think thir around 3,200 are outside of those two major centers. Um, and so these are opportunities for people to find detox. These are p opportunities to, uh, for people to find uh, uh, treatment. And, and then on top of that, we're also, we continue to, to build out more. And then not only that, we're making it easier for people to get there. We've got, uh, under, uh, actually under, under the previous government, a lot of addicts, uh, if they were going into publicly funded, so taxpayer-funded public health care treatment centers, they actually had to pay $40 a day. So if somebody was, I think um, there was the, the, the grandson who was in for 30 days, that's what? That's like 1200 bucks in a month. If, if somebody was there for longer, say two months, that's like 2400 bucks. Th these are not, th this, is a, this is a barrier that made it essentially impossible for a lot of people to, 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 to take the opportunity to go into treatment. And then not only that, our government has actually become the very first government, uh, kind of sticking strictly with the opioid uh, aspect of the addiction crisis, to build out the virtual opioid dependency program. And so basically what that is, is that is anybody anywhere in the province, right, lit, literally right now, can call that and they can be connected to a doctor who will give them an assessment and, pr and they can get treatment on demand for opioid agonist therapy. And so what's that, what that is, it's basically uh, a medication that will reduce uh, your, say, your desire to go back to uh, fentanyl or anything along those lines. And actually 95% of people who go on to these kind of medications, sublocate is one, uh, can find stability. And then when you can find that stability, then you can get into, you know, making the correct decisions with regards to getting into treatment and all that kind of stuff as well. So it's not just, you know, more of the same, more, you know, oh, same, same, but, you know, no, we're actually, we're actually seeing real positive results uh, relative to other provinces in this country. Most kind of peaked for opioid crisis issues, like opioid deaths, in I want to say November of 2021. We've now cut the numbers from, the, from in and around that time in half, and we continue to, uh, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that these, that these trends will continue in the positive direction that they're going. That also includes even individuals accessing the healthcare system through uh, calling, um, calling ambulances or going to the hospital, et cetera. Those are down somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 35%. So we're actually seeing real, real change for the better with the decisions that we've been making for building out the whole recovery-oriented system of care, but specifically with regards to your question, I think, the treatment capacity that we've managed to, to build effectively over the course of the last four years. Yeah, I would just supplement that, Minister, by saying I mean, this, is, this, is, this is why we've been receiving the international recognition, right? When we, saw, when we saw at that particular time that you noted there, as we saw our opioid fatalities decrease by 50%, uh, while the other policies in other jurisdictions were, were we'll say, um, the opposite of ours, theirs were increasing by about 30% roughly. Uh, let me just further add to this. Um, look, there is no easy answer to this. It is a very, very complex problem with no silver bullet solution. But like I said, 
the, the recovery-oriented system of care that I mentioned that Mr. Milliken uh, um, is absolutely a part of is part of that holistic uh, view in dealing with these very, very complex issues so that no matter where you are, um, no matter where you turn to let that person know who has that severe opioid addiction or just uh, addiction uh, or addiction, that the that there are services available to them. Again, first of its kind in North America and certainly receiving a lot of very positive international attention. And if I could just quickly supplement, it's Minister Milliken. I mentioned earlier about the four pillars, this prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery. That's not just a catchphrase or anything like that. We've already had a question with regards to prevention and how important it is. That, and, and so we've, built, we've talked a lot about some of the supports that we have in that. Intervention, obviously, you know, uh, having the opportunity to make sure that people can, can, can make the change to get into treatment, et cetera. And then you've got treatment. We've talked about building out that capacity. And then, of course, recovery, because we had the question about, you know, how are people being followed after they get out of, uh, out of treatment. These are, it is, it, to use uh, Minister Ellis's term, this is a holistic process. And again, uh, to, to use a term from before, too, the journey of recovery is a lifelong journey. Thank you, Ministers. Uh, tonight we are talking about public safety and emergency services in Alberta. If you have a question for any of the speakers, just press star three on your phone now to enter the queue. So this next question was submitted to us by Calvin and it's a question from Minister Ellis. Minister Ellis, what are the emergency plans for the 2023 fire and flood season? Yeah, thanks, Calvin. Um, certainly, we are prepared. Um, you know, one of my mandates from uh, Premier uh, Smith was to make sure that we are prepared for for any emergency that uh, that hits the province. Um, I can tell you that uh, I have attended the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. Um, I think it's important to understand that um, what we do is we provide supports to the municipalities. So a municipality uh, becomes uh, a lead uh, on on an emergency. Um, and then we supplement and support them uh, to uh, whatever whatever they wish. Uh, certainly, if it, if it is some of the smaller municipalities that obviously may be uh, limited in some of their abilities, certainly we do have the capacity at the Alberta Emerg Emergency Management Agency uh, to provide uh, uh, even more supports and, and even handle uh, whatever that critical incident might be. Uh, we're very fortunate that uh, my assistant deputy minister is a, a retired uh, brigadier general with the uh, with the uh, Canadian military, and I can tell you I've uh, toured this facility. I've seen a a, a mock uh, simulation of a uh, an emergency, and seeing the absolute coordinated approach, uh, everything from our. Um, our RCMP members, to the local municipalities, to uh, whatever the social agencies are, uh, and I've seen that in full force. And I can tell you, I mean, I'm going to knock on wood. I mean, I don't want a, a, another big disaster here in Alberta, but I can tell you right now, anyone anywhere in Alberta, rest assured that this government is prepared uh, if, uh, if, God forbid, we do have one. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. Uh, on the line, we have John calling in from somewhere in uh, rural Alberta. Uh, John, you're now live. Can you please go ahead with your question for Minister Shandro, I believe? Yeah. I'm uh, quite concerned uh, with uh, listening to the conversation about uh, treatment and recovery, but very little has been said about uh, 
controlling. Now, if we didn't have uh, illegal drugs on the streets, we wouldn't have the problems that we have today. Uh, we In rural Alberta, there's quite a bit of uh, thefts and whatnot, and uh, we've been on the acreage now for over 40 years. When we first came out, we didn't have to lock anything. Everything was safe. But now I have to keep everything under lock and key. And I don't know who in their wisdom uh, a number of years ago that the police cannot stop a vehicle unless they have just cause. Well, years ago, and I was involved in this, and, and we had a lot of two-man detachments in rural Canada, and where we had two-man detachments, granted the population has increased, but there's now 30 and 40 members there, and the crime has increased. I know from experience that if vehicles could be stopped at any time, day or night, just check their driver's license, illegal, at that time illegal uh, liquor, People were more cautious, but today uh, there was a, a group of young uh, people that were uh, driving past our property, and uh, they were uh, drinking uh, alcohol while they were driving, and I said, well, aren't you uh, afraid you might be picked up? They said, the police are never around here. And that's the attitude now. Thank you, John. Um, Minister? Oh, th thanks so much, Ethan, and thank you, John, for the question. Uh, I think quite a few questions in there. Uh, I think, John, I think uh, it was great to get that feedback from you. What I hear from, from what you're saying with a lot of these, these stories and a lot of the, the questions we're asking there is the concern that our, our communities have become less safe, in, in, in particular in rural Alberta. And I think you're right. And I think if you think about it, it it's really gotten worse over the last couple of years. Um, it started in 2019, quite frankly, when the Trudeau government made changes to the bail regime in Canada. It was a, a bill called C-75. Uh, and what they did is they changed the bail regime so drastically that they made um, pretrial custody uh, almost impossible. And, and every, uh, all the, the, the folks who are accused, including repeat offenders and folks who are accused of a serious crime are um, getting uh, no cash bail and going back out sometimes the same day and offending right away and it's demoralizing it's really upsetting to our, our law, law enforcement and our prosecutors who want to see uh the bad guys being pursued prosecuted and punished uh so i i hear where you're coming from this is why we raised the alarm at a conference of justice ministers back last uh, october and uh i was heartened to see that other every province jumped on and said yeah tyler's right this is happening this is a concern. It's in BC, it's in Saskatchewan, it's in Ontario. And uh, it resulted in uh, all the pro uh, premiers of every province and territory signing a letter to the Trudeau government last January. We ended up having an emergency meeting uh, of justice ministers and public safety ministers. Minister Ellis and I went uh, to Ottawa. And uh, it's, it's not the end, uh, but we have had a commitment from the federal government that there will be changes 
at, at least along the lines of having a reverse onus on folks who are a repeat offender or someone accused of a serious crime. Uh, that's going to be good. So hopefully sometime later this year, we'll start to feel the effects of, of that. But it's not not the end of it. We have to continue to advocate because uh, there there has been a class of offenders out in our communities who feel that they can inflict violence upon us with impunity. And so what we need to do is make sure we're investing in our, our policing, investing in our prosecutors, and, uh, and, and working to do as much as we can to keep our community safe. So thanks so much, John. Uh, thanks, Minister. Uh, and uh, John's, uh, Minister Mike Ellis here. I just want to supplement one of your, I believe you had one of these questions in there. You could talk a little bit about, de- I would say, decriminalization. Let me just say that decriminalization is in no way an effective policy. In fact, uh, the uh, jurisdictions uh, that have done that, obviously in British Columbia, uh, they have not seen any net decrease in any of the problems that they're having. And uh, again, I would argue that uh, the uh, only people that have been empowered by decriminalization have been the drug dealers. Uh, In fact, you've just taken tools out of the toolbox for law enforcement to make it more difficult uh, to do their job. So thanks very much. Thank you, ministers. Uh, Next question we have comes from Jack from Vagerville, and he's got a question for uh, Minister Ellis. So, Minister... What are you doing to support policing for First Nations? Uh, Great question, uh, Jack. I I have to give kudos uh, to Minister Shandro here, who really started this process. Um, uh, Siksika, which has now moved into Phase 2, is actually going to be the uh, first jurisdiction, I think, in about 14 years, that is going to be moving uh, and establishing themselves, uh, establishing their own police service. Um, I'm very, uh, very impressed with everything that they have done. I know that um, uh, our government has been very clear that we want to uh, empower First Nations communities. Uh, we want to do what we can to assist them, uh, so that um, you know they can, um, uh, you know, have all the resources available to help uh, their people. As you've heard me say before, when we talk about the paradigm shift, it's so that uh, so that these communities. Um, are a reflection of the community that you're you, that they are actually um, recruiting from the community, and uh, I can tell you through these uh, police uh, transition grants that the government has made available, I believe that we've had at least fix, uh, five, sorry, pardon me, five, and I think I had even one uh, over the last couple of days contact me uh, that they're interested. So you're looking at at least six other First Nations communities that would be looking at going down the path of, uh, of establishing their own police service. Um, very proud of uh, the work that Minister Shandro started, uh, very proud to continue uh, on with empowering First Nations uh, in this spirit of reconciliation. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. And Ethan, before uh, we go to the next uh, caller, I, I just want to jump in, because I think people need to understand this too. The province is doing amazing work to give a roadmap for Indigenous communities to, to be able to establish a First Nations policing service. But I think people need to know how frustrating it is for First Nations to deal with the federal government on this. There's a, a program called the First Nations and Inuit Policing Program, the FNIPP. So if a First Nation wants to establish their own self-administered service, uh, if, or if they don't, remember they would fall because of the size of their community, they would fall under provincial policing, which right now we contract out to the, the RCMP. So the province pays 70%, the feds pay 30%. Uh, 
Um, and then if there is a self-administered leasing program, it switches. The, the feds pay 52, we pay 48. But it's so frustrating for these communities. And, and if we want more indigenous communities to, to be able to step forward and establish their own, we need as communities to step up and, and hold the federal government to account because they've been saying for three or four years that they're going to fix the FNIPP and have refused. It's an unfair and uh, uh, it's, it's actually quite a ridiculous program. Uh, those police officers under that program are not paid equitably. They're paid 20% less than an RCP officer. They don't get a pension. It's really hard for those police officers to be recruited to those communities. On top of that, they're not allowed to have specialized teams. So there's really no fairness for these uh, police services. And then the other difficulty is that they're only allowed to budget from year to year because they're not, in the terminology of the federal government, an essential service. So they don't, they don't get to plan out for five years. When I was on the police commission here in Calgary, uh, the idea of not being able to, to plan out for five years with your budget would have been absolutely ridiculous. So we, we're doing everything we can with these communities, but we really need to get the message out to people that we need to hold the feds to account for how the FNIPP is not flexible, it's unfair, and it's inequitable. Thanks. Thank you, ministers. Uh, so we're going to take our next caller here. On the line, we have Monica from Athabasca. And Monica has a question, I think, for all ministers. So, uh, Monica, you are now live. Uh, please go ahead with your question. Thank you. Um, I work with Indigenous people and homeless people and RCMP. And I've been here for way before the Trudeau government. It gets me a little frustrating when we seem to like to blame the federal government for everything. But I'll tell you what I'm seeing on the streets with our homeless population. Most of them have homes that they could go to, except their behaviors are so toxic. Oftentimes they end up using the hospital and the RCMP station as a warming shelter, and it's a rotating bed because there's nothing that they can really charge them with that will make it stick in the provincial courts, and there aren't enough prosecutors to get those cases through. We've had some pretty horrific crimes that have made headlines in this town because, and in the province because of the drug trade that's happening right here, right now. We have some people that are so sick, they actually believe that there are gems popping out of their bodies, and they're going to make millions of dollars on these gems popping out of their bodies. We take them to get a mental health assessment, and the doctors say, we don't have space in the hospitals for them. They're not sick enough. They know what they're doing. It is heartbreaking what is happening here. And they don't have the facility, unless they want to hitchhike to Edmonton or Fort McMurray, to get the treatment they want, even if they did want to treat, get the treatment. They like their lifestyle. It is beyond the capacity of a small town to deal with this situation. So what are we going to do rather than blame the feds for all these problems? Because this has been happening way before the Trudeau government ever got in. This has been going on since before I got here, and I got here in 2012. Uh, thank you for your question. Uh, oh, go ahead, Minister. Oh, sorry, yeah. Uh, I, just because there was a pause, I just started jumping in, uh, Ethan. Well, uh, do you mind well, if I, I actually, Minister Shadow, do you mind if I just uh, jump in really quick? Sure. Thank you very much. I really uh, I appreciate that. 
Uh, first off, Monica, I want to thank you for what you're doing uh, with the, the work that you're doing. I've talked to a lot of individuals who are on the front lines uh, with regards to the, these issues, and the work that you do is helping and saving lives, and we really do appreciate it. One of the things that I would say immediately is, of course, to continue to build out uh, the treatment capacity that we have so that we have individuals, uh, that we have the spaces for the individuals um, who need obviously need treatment. You had kind of mentioned uh, or alluded to the fact that a lot of the individuals who are in the throes of addiction, they really they like their lifestyle. And so wh what are we doing to, to make it so that we can find a way to get them some sort of um, intervention, and I often think about this as like a compassionate intervention. You've got these individuals who are addicted, and you mentioned it. They're so sick, um, and they're, you, you mentioned gems and all that kind of stuff, the, the basically hallucinations, etc. And when people are at the stage where they are uh, a severe harm to, them, to themselves, obviously we've talked a lot about some of the, uh, the community safety aspects that come uh, from these issues. I think that it's important, um, me personally, I think that we need to have a way, we need to figure out a way to compassionately intervene in these individuals' lives to make sure that they can get the treatment and the recovery uh, that, that they need. We, we absolutely have to do something. Um, so sorry, Minister Shander, I'll pass it back to you, but I just really wanted to, to, to make those two points on this point really quick. No, no, good point, because there, there were questions for both of us there, so no, that's great. And, and thank you for the question. Look, like the FNIPP is a, a passion of mine, and, and I'm going to continue to hold the, the Trudeau government to account for those Indigenous communities, and I, I won't make any apologies for that, but I do get your point that you want to hear governments working together uh, when, it's, uh, when it's appropriate. And uh, I think, as I said earlier tonight, when it came to the bail issue, uh, the federal government heard from the provinces our concerns and at that uh, conference uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, started collaborating with us. And uh, so to give them kudos, they were listening to us and wanted to collaborate with us to, to deal with uh, repeat offenders and serious offenders. So there are ways in which we are working with the federal government, which is great. Um, we will also, when it comes to the question you have for, for me and uh, Nick, um, continue to invest in the court system. As I said to a question earlier tonight, we have 55 more prosecutors working today uh, than, than under previous government. This is the most number of prosecutors in the history of the province. It's the lowest vacancy, or sorry, not vacancy rate. Well, yeah, vacancy rate, but also turnover rate uh, in, in the, at least the last 10 years, but at least since people have been keeping stats on this in the provincial government. Uh, it used to, used to be you know, around 11% turnover rate for prosecutors, and it's now down to 4.1%. Uh, we've also added four new judges last year, and we're adding another three uh, in the next month or two with Budget 23. Um, we're expanding the courts as well uh, by adding another 140 new clerks. Most of those folks are going to be in, in the frontline services to try and keep stuff out of the, the courts and moving stuff uh, as efficiently as possible. And uh, I, I think as well, the, the 16 new prosecutors doing the pre-charge assessments. So budget 23 is a, a good news budget for the justice system for new innovative ways for us to, to address uh, capacity, address volume, and address uh, speed for the justice system. So thank you for that question. 
Uh, you know what, uh, Minister Ellis here, I'll just be very brief because I know there's, uh, we want to get a couple more questions in. Look, uh, Monica, you're not wrong. Uh, I was a part of the Alberta Secretariat for Action on Homelessness uh, many, many, many moons ago. Uh, disproportionately, our vulnerable people uh, have been our First Nations communities. Successive governments, uh, uh, successive federal governments, I would argue, have uh, failed our First Nations communities. One of the things that we've done as a government is to sit there and say, you know what, um, we're, we're, we're not going to rely on or count on uh, the federal government. And that's why uh, um, what we did in this government is we put a recovery community working with the blood tribe and ensuring that there's a 75-bed recovery community put on the Kainai Reserve. And that has been something that is going to be a game changer. And we're looking at putting other ones all around Alberta to make sure that we're helping our First Nations communities in recovery. Yeah, and I would just say stay tuned because we're actually going to have uh, – I'm going to have an announcement on – with regards to this very, very shortly as well. Uh, thank you, Ministers. Uh, our next question comes from uh, Donald in Big Lakes County, and it's a question for Minister Ellis. Uh, Minister, will you be doing anything about the main cause of drug use, the drug dealers? Uh, thanks. Yes. The answer is yes. Um, I have uh, no sympathy. I have no, um, certainly no empathy for the drug dealer. Those drug dealers prey on vulnerable people. Um, in fact, it's it's a, it's a bit of a, it's all about the money for them. And uh, that is why um, uh, there's a lot of gang violence that has uh, started, well, it's all throughout Alberta. But let me just say that uh, we've invested an enormous amount of money in the Alberta Law Enforcement Response Team. Uh, there is uh, obviously a relationship between the large municipalities and rural Alberta, so we are uh, working collaboratively with uh, the Calgary Police Service and soon hopefully with the uh, Edmonton Police Service as well uh, to really target the gangs. And um, I would say this is just basically to supplement uh, what um, Minister Chandra had said regarding Bill C-75. And this is a message, of course, to all the gang members out there. If you choose to commit crime in this province, you will be arrested. Um, if the system chooses to let you out, you're going to be arrested again. And that is going to continue to happen up until the point you change your ways or you leave this province. But we are not going to tolerate gang violence and we are not going to tolerate criminal activity in this province any longer. Thank you, Minister. Uh, we're going to take the next question. Uh, on the line, we have uh, Diane from Southern Alberta, who has a question for Minister Shandro. Uh, Diane, you're now live. Please go ahead with your question. Uh, my question is a multifold question. Um, if guns that are legally owned are confiscated under the proposed gun laws, how are people such as rural residents and ranchers supposed to protect themselves from predatory animals such as coyotes, bears, or rabid raccoons, or whatever? And how are they to handle animals that need to be put down? Um, I personally had an experience a couple of years ago. We farm and have cattle. We had a cow that was calving. She... Um, went crazy. She jumped over the six-foot metal fence, and uh, the calf was half out. She got me down, and it ended up we had to shoot her because she had a calf half out and would have died anyway, but in total agony. 
So guns are a tool to us. And besides that, the legal guns aren't the problems. The guns owned by farmers, ranchers, and most hunters aren't the problem. It's a societal problem where we're encountering children not being told there is a moral and social line not to be crossed. They rebel, they become bullies, they end up going on drugs when they are kids or teenagers and older because they don't know how to cope with or how to use the word no. Now, um, I've seen evidence of this in our schools where you reprimand the kid and they come around and say, under the charter of my right, uh, our charter of rights, it's my right to say or do as I please. And what is happening is a knee-jerk reaction by the government and saying, we'll confiscate the guns. What do we do about it? Well, thank you. I mean, I think you're right. Um, and, like, if you talk to police officers in, in a police service that have a gangs and guns unit, They'll tell you because they, they do have relationships with gang members and uh, th- those gang members will tell the police officers themselves they're not going to steal a legally acquired firearm from someone's home. They don't want that. I mean, a legally acquired firearm from Canada is going to have a max of, of 10 rounds in its magazines. So they don't want that. They, they want guns from the United States, which have 18 rounds in their magazines. Uh, so that's that's where they're going to get their guns from. They're going to continue to get the guns uh, from across the border. And you're right that firearms are tools, and they're tools for hunters, they're tools for farmers, they're tools for sports shooters. Um, and we need to continue to advocate for the the law-abiding firearms community, who are uh, a community that's focused on on safety, focused on keeping uh, our community safe. Um, working with manufacturers and retailers as well, who also want to to work with Albertans to keep and and work with law enforcement to keep our community safe. So what we need to do is to continue to advocate and hope that the federal government begins to see. Um, you know, they, they got a lot of pushback with the amendments that were proposed for C21 from a lot of rural uh, Canadians. It's not just Alberta; it was Saskatchewan, it was Ontario. It's not partisan. There were NDPers who stood up and opposed that. Um, so I think it's just a matter of making sure voices are heard. So thank you so much for that question. Thank you, Minister. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone that called in tonight. We've had uh, so many great questions and, and a lot of great conversation. Um, Minister Ellis, would you like to share some closing comments? Well, sure. Uh, thank you very much, Ethan. Um, uh, certainly, um, there's been a lot of great questions, a lot of great conversations. Um, you know, I just want to say, I just want to thank everybody for participating. Um, you know, I, I think with the amount of people that we had online, which is uh, enormous, I'll just say that. Um, very, uh, um, wow, 14,000? Wow, 14,230. That's amazing, everybody. Um, I hope I hope it's been uh, informative informative um you know it sounds to me as though with that many people online we probably have a lot more questions so we'll take that as a takeaway uh and uh we thank everybody very much and certainly on behalf of minister milliken on behalf of minister chandro um, i just want to thank everybody and uh i hope uh i hope we have another one of these chats again 
Well, thank you, ministers, for uh, putting this town hall together. And thank you to all the people who chose to spend the last uh, 90 minutes listening and asking great questions. Thank you, and good night.